Hello and welcome to Battlecast, the show where we talk about the greatest battles in history and, of course, drink beer. I'm Luke, and I'm joining the bunker with my best friend and yours, Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Now, Chris is the best man, most awesome, and intelligent person I know. Is that how you wanted me to read it, Chris? Well, close enough, Luke. I guess you get to live another day. (laughs) Thanks, man. Well, all right. This month's question comes from Mark in Spokane, Washington. He wants to know if we will cover the battle from the movie Black Hawk Down. Well, uh, Mark, that battle is called the Battle of Mogadishu, and I just read four books about it because you emailed me, so yes, we will cover it. Oh, that's a good battle. I love that movie. It's got a lot of great people in it. Eric Bana, um, the guy that plays Jamie Lannister. yeah, just got a great cast. I didn't know Jamie Lannister Jamie was Jamie Lannister is in that movie. Oh, guys, well, we're covering it after we cover today's show, which is going to be Iwo Jima. All right, this month is a special episode. We're doing our first show about a battle from World War II. Of course, we're talking about Iwo Jima tonight on Battlecast. The United States military is blitzing across the Pacific Ocean, island hopping from mainland Japan. There's a problem, though. And that problem is an island called Iwo Jima. And it's going to be a hell of a show, I can promise you that. But before we do anything, we have to do the most important thing. What's that, Luke? Crack open a few cold ones, baby. I love beer. You know, I do too. Beer's awesome. (laughs) Thank you. I agree. I'm sure beer salutes you, Chris. That's why I'm so smart. And we're saluting beer tonight on Battlecast. This beer is making me awesome. (laughs) It's true. Alright, tonight we're drinking beer from Japan. That's why we're cracking open Sapporo beer. Sapporo is a crisp lager that pours a clear yellow and comes in at 4.9% alcohol. Chris, beers to you, buddy. What do you think of this beer? I like it. It's uh, not it's not anything to write home about, but it's very crisp. Hmm. Um, um, just It's very tasty, flavorful. It's the kind of beer you drink on a hot day. Yeah. You can easily sit on your lawn and do it. Um, I usually get it when we go, to the, we go eat sushi. Me and you were actually just on the, or you and I were actually just on the lawn, and yeah, it was going good. Yeah, it was going good. In anticipation. In anticipation of this. Well, guys, I'm going to give this beer a solid three bullets out of five. It's not bad. It's not good. It's a lot like Lando Calrissian. It leaves you hanging a lot, but comes through in the end. (laughs) I love Lando. (laughs) And I'm going to go with you. Three out of five. Excellent beer. Nothing to write home about, but you ain't going to be disappointed. Yeah, I, I'm with that all the way. And with that, let's dive into the Pacific Ocean and the Battle of Iwo Jima. And there it is, Iwo Jima, eight square miles of volcanic rock. To two divisions of the United States Marines fell the task of creating that bridgehead, 4,500 yards wide. The greatest United States force ever assembled in the Pacific closes on Iwo Jima. 800 ships and thousands of small landing craft head for the island. Carriers, lying back of the main fleet, sent in hundreds of bombers. For 72 days before the landings, our bombers pounded the heavily fortified Jap base. Masuribachi, 546-feet volcano, guards Iwo and heavy, dangerous flak threatens planes coming in to dive-bomb shore positions. The death-dealing planes of the task force return, some of them carrying the scars of battle. Others are even less fortunate. Breaking free of the wreckage, the pilot swims until help arrives. Our battleships struck ten separate times at Iwo to soften it up. The Japs, mistaking our reconnaissance for attack, reported our landings had been repulsed. Three days and nights of thunder and flame preceded the actual landing. The landings are rooted with timetable precision. Marines of the 4th and 5th Divisions, delivered by the Coast Guard, head for the beach. Further protection is provided by a cover barrage of light guns and rockets. 40,000 Marines are rushed to the desolate shores of the island. So important is the plan for victory over Japan. 
It's the winter of 1944. Hitler is in his bunker in Berlin getting surrounded by the Allies and the United States is island hopping across the Pacific. Three years have passed since the Japanese struck the United States Navy at Pearl Harbor. Since that time, the United States and her allies have pushed back the defenses of the Japanese Empire to the gates of Japan itself. Iwo Jima was no ordinary island was considered part of Japan. This was the land of Shinto, a holy land, ruled over by a living deity, the Japanese emperor, descended from the gods themselves, and the Americans were coming, with overwhelming force, with a surrounding armada, with almost total domination of the skies. They were coming to desecrate the sacred lands of holy Japan with their industrial might and naked materialism. But the Japanese had a weapon too. They had Bushido, the spirit of the samurai. Bushido is characterized by total loyalty to the emperor, even unto death. One might say especially regarding death. Here is what an 18th century samurai said about the culture of Bushido. Quote, the way of samurai is found in death. There is only the quick choice of death. It is not particularly difficult. Be determined. Advance. To say that dying without reaching one's aim is to die a dog's death is the frivolous way of sophisticates. When pressed with the choice of life or death, it is not necessary to gain one's aim. We all want to live. But not having attained our aim and continuing to live is nothing but cowardice. This is a thin, dangerous line. To die without gaining one's aim is a dog's death and fanaticism. But there is no shame in this. This is the substance of the way of the samurai. If by setting one's heart right every morning and night, one is able to live as though his body were already dead, he gains freedom in the way. His whole life will be without blame, and he will succeed in his calling. End quote. That's, that's pretty uh, hardcore right there. Um, I, I don't know what other, what other civilizations had that kind of fanatical devotion uh, or, or code. Well, you know what? The guy that wrote Rambo, uh, his name is Morell. David Morell notes mm-hmm. that the house carls of Anglo-Saxon oh, England right. yeah, that we talked about had that, a similar loyalty to the samurai. I'd also say the Spartans had a loyalty like that, too. What about the Spanish Inquisition? <laughs> I don't know. Fanatical I, devotion to the Pope? I haven't read enough about that yet. Maybe, maybe. All right, guys. Well, you know what? Now I want to tell you about an expression of Bushido. There was a group of people called the League of the Divine Win. Right? It's who the kamikazes are named after. These were a group of samurai who were horrified by the Meiji Restoration Government's process of Western modernization in 1868. Here's how John Nathan describes these men. Quote, As a group, they refused to have anything to do with the West. They would pick up paper money only with chopsticks, and when they could not avoid walking beneath the newly erected telephone line, telegraph lines, they covered their heads with white fans. Finally, unable to countenance what to them was at once misgovernment and sacrilege, they consulted the will of the Shinto gods through a special rite and received divine sanction to, quote, cut down the unworthy ministers by striking in the darkness with sword. They knew they had no chance of overthrowing the local government, which commanded forces outnumbering their own ten to one. They knew they would be sacrificing their lives in accordance with the will of the gods for their emperor, and that is what they did. At the end of the one day of battle, those of the ringleaders who were still alive gathered on a hill, and they all committed seppuku together. End quote. Do you think think that was before or after Tom Cruise? Definitely before. Too bad it wasn't during. (laughs) Now, Yukio Mishima, the famous Japanese novelist, said this about their rebellion. Quote, The League conducted a pure experiment, primitive and fanatic in the Japanese spirit. Naturally, it was doomed to fail. Westernization was the only political course Japan could have taken at that time. It was an experiment bound to fail, but not before it revealed purity and orthodoxy. The substance, call it the core, of what we mean when we speak of Japan and the Japanese, end quote. You know, I hear that quote about the Japanese core, and I think about us. What would be our core as a people? I know Pornhub is the 18th most popular site in America, and among men alone, it's probably in the top 10. Facebook's number 3 and Amazon is number 5. The data's there for the world to see, and it makes me think of Hamlet. Quote, But to my mind, though I am native here, and to the manner born, these are customs more honored in not doing them than the observance of them. 
This heavy-headed revel east and west makes us traduced and taxed of other nations. They clep us drunkards, and with swinish phrase soil our addition, and indeed it takes from our achievements, though performed at our height. End quote. But let's return to the culture of Bushido that was popularized in popular music education and print media. Consider this song written by a schoolgirl named Companion Cherry Blossoms. It was published in 1944. Here are the first four lines. You and I, companion cherry blossoms, flowered in the garden of the same military school, just as the blossoms calmly scatter, we too are ready to fall for our country. Here is the way of death, the way of the samurai expressed by the Lady Gaga of their day. This cultural system isn't like what passes for religion in much of the West today. It's totalizing. It has a real-world impact on the men who live in it. Kikagar said that purity is pursuing one's end, pursuing one thing above all else. These Japanese men on the island of Iwo Jima are pursuing Bushido. But what does that mean in real life? Let me tell you a story from the battle, a little teaser. In the middle of the Battle of Iwo Jima, America was raining death down on many Japanese strongpoints. After months of continuous battle and shelling, a Japanese soldier tried to escape to the north end of the island, away from the front line. Now, he's not surrendering, surrendering to the Americans. He's only trying to gain a momentary escape from the battle and regroup with his fellow Japanese after his position was overrun by the Americans. Here is what Captain Samaji Inoue had to say about that. Quote, Inoue threatened to personally behead a wounded naval lieutenant who had escaped from Surabachi after its fall. Why don't you die at your post like a samurai should? What's wrong with you? He drew his sword to behead the men, but his fellow officers convinced him that the men would be better killed by running a bomb into an American position. End quote. And that's just what he did. Oh, that's pretty... That's pretty hardcore. <laughs> it's very hardcore. Yeah, don't, uh, don't don't run away in that guy's, that guy's platoon. <laughs> this is the culture of death waiting, skulking in miles upon miles of caves on Iwo Jima, like a second Grendel, waiting for America's Beowulf to come, and they were coming. On the largest fleet ever assembled, much larger than the D-Day fleet that led the conquest of Normandy, these American boys from Alabama, Iowa, Kentucky, New York, and Virginia were coming to face the Japanese Moloch, and they had a culture too. Coming to face these holy warriors, these descendants of the samurai were the United States Marine Corps, battle-hardened men who had campaigned across the Pacific, these human grasshoppers hopping from island to island, from victory to victory, they were coming, and Japan was waiting to embrace them. The Battle of Iwo Jima took place from February 19th to March 26, 1945. The battle is one of the bloodiest chapters in the Pacific War and cost tens of thousands of Japanese and American lives. If America could take the island, the path to Japan would be open. Iwo Jima is located about 700 miles south of Tokyo in the Pacific Ocean. The island's surface comprises only 8 square miles. It resembles a triangle with the point facing down and with the whole triangle skewed to the left, we'll post pictures to the website. On this island are approximately 24,000 Japanese soldiers, cut off and with no naval support whatsoever. Once these men run out of food and ammunition, there will be no more. It will be what Jefferson Davis called war to the knife. Many Japanese, out of ammunition, would attack Americans with samurai swords. They had very little air support, and what air support will be available will attack the American ships. In other words, the Japanese air units aren't going to help the men on the ground. Facing these formidable Japanese defenses are over 500 ships in one of the largest armadas the world has ever seen. The Americans have almost complete air superiority. Their navy literally circles the island with virtual impunity. Still, America sends 160,000 men to face the 24,000 Japanese soldiers. 70,000 of the American troops are Marines, the elite branch of the United States military. However, only 8,000 men of these are draftees who have no experience in combat. The meat grinder is going to play hell with these new recruits. They've been training for months. Laborious, back-breaking training. Here's how a story in Bill Ross describes the training, quote, Troops were pushed harder than ever before in field problems with flamethrower teams and demolitions men. 
Every day, the men scrambled up steep slopes, rehearsing frontal attacks against mock pillboxes and bunkers. They trained under live fire from artillery, mortars, machine guns, and dive bombers. Thirty-mile force marches with full combat packs and weapons added stamina to the men already in shape. It was a dawn-to-dust schedule that sometimes went through the night, tailored to harden and hone them for Iwo Jima's wicked terrain. End quote. These were the men who would clear Iwo Jima blockhouse by blockhouse, cave by cave, death by death. The commander of the Japanese forces, Tadamichi Kurabayashi, was waiting for the Americans. It's time for General versus General, the part of the show where we compare the two generals who are facing each other. And on the Japanese side, we have Tadamichi Kurabayashi. There's only one way to put it. Kurbayashi was a hell of a man. I've read a lot about this battle and war, and I can tell you Kurbayashi was always dutiful, always intelligent. Emperor Hirohito handpicked Kurbayashi to defend Iwo Jima. I like to let participants speak for themselves, so I want to let you hear the last letter Kurbayashi sent from the doomed island. It was addressed to his brother. He writes, quote, I may not return alive from this assignment, but let me assure you, that I shall fight to the best of my ability, so that no disgrace will be brought upon our family. I will fight as a son of Kurabayashi the samurai, and will behave in such a manner as to deserve the name of Kurabayashi. May my ancestors guide me. End quote. For his doomed defense, Kurabayashi knows he can't possibly win. He doesn't even try to win. His sole goal is to protract the struggle and demonstrate to America how impossibly bloody the conquest of Japanese territories will be. Japanese leaders hope that America will negotiate a settlement rather than face the terrible casualties Japan is willing and able to inflict on them. Accordingly, Kurabayashi worked around the clock with thousands of soldiers and sailors and a battalion of Korean laborers burrowing miles and miles of tunnels and building hundreds of concrete gun emplacements, bunkers, and pillboxes at a frantic pace to make the island impregnable. This was the dam on which the American tidal wave would break. Here's how one historian described Kurabayashi. Quote, Five generations of his ancestors had served in the armies of six emperors, and he carried the tradition with pride and zealous dedication. Because of Kurabayashi's training, discipline, desire, and devotion to duty in the emperor, Hirohito was certain he was the right warrior, at the right place, and at the right time to save Japan. He weighed just 200 pounds, but all of it was hard muscle, and he carried it on a 5 feet, 9 inch frame, somewhat tall for people from his nation. He had spent 30 of his 53 years in military schools or at duty stations. He had commanded troops in the victorious campaigns of Manchuria and China. End quote. Kurabayashi was a man born and bred to military greatness, a descendant and continuation of the samurai. He greeted death like an old friend. And the man who would try and help Kurabayashi die like a dutiful samurai is Holland, Howlin' Mad Smith. If I had to pick one word to summarize Smith's character, it would be aggression. If I had to pick one word to describe you, Luke, you'd be bad haircut. <laughs> All right, well, listen. Now, Smith is in command of the Marine Corps troops on the ground, but he has a commander over him, and that is Chester Nimitz. Nimitz makes decisions that will influence this battle, but on the day-to-day tactical operations, Howlin' Mad Smith calls the shots. Now, Smith is 62 and has served in the military for over 40 years. The first thing you need to know is Smith is a fighter. That's why the American press hated his guts. Everywhere he commanded troops, casualties were high, and the rich editors back at home, sitting in their private clubs being served by anonymous waiters, were sick of it and sick of him. Here's what publishing magnate Robert McCormick said about Smith, quote, Smith is a butcher and a cold-blooded murderer and an indiscriminate waster of human life, end quote. In reality, Smith's efforts were hampered by inner-surface rivalry. He constantly was fighting with Ray Spruance, the commander of the naval forces, and Kelly Turner, the commander of the air forces, about how his men weren't getting the air and naval support they needed. This conflict between the leadership of the American Armed Services likely caused many men to die. Here's how Smith described the situation. Quote, if the Marines had received better cooperation from the Navy, our casualties would have been much lower. 
More naval gunfire would have saved many lives. The Navy tried to run the show. It was admirals who wanted to be generals who imperiled victory among the Pacific Islands. End quote. And Smith didn't just fight it with his equals. He was often disgruntled with Admiral Nimitz, the overall commander of the Pacific Forces. Smith was a devout Christian from Alabama and completely straightforward, so much so his personality alone caused conflict among the leadership. During the fighting at Roy Namur and in the Marianas, Smith had fired two army generals for not moving fast enough against the Japanese. In return, the army leadership had bluntly refused to let its forces ever fight under General Smith again. Chris, what do you think of these two generals? Well, it sounds like Smith didn't want to get any messages saying he would, his troops were holding their position. <laughs> of course, yeah, totally. <laughs> aggressive. like an ultra-aggressive general. Yeah. Kind of like Vince Dooley in the 1980 Georgia Bulldogs, where he just had Her- Herschel Walker slamming him into the line <laughs> over and over again because he knew the enemy, or the opposing team, as it were, had no had no answer for one of the great, the greatest football player in college football history. And it sounds like Kirby Ashi's more like... If you gave Bear Bryant like the Troy State football team, mm. but he had to take on somebody like uh, had to take on Nick Saban's Alabama team, Ooh. they just wouldn't be able to wouldn't be able to stand up to it because he just doesn't have the men, the resources, the 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 budget to stand up yeah. to a tier one Division one football team. Yeah, that, you know I think that's a great point. It's it's a lot like the resources of Troy University, even though you gave it to a, a, a mastermind coach, he would make headway. You'd see a difference. But could he overcome the terrible odds against him from Alabama? No, I mean the Americans have the they have the largest armada ever assembled, so obviously they've got the island cut off from supplies. It's just Com- whatever totally cut totally off, totally cut off. So whatever the Japanese have with them, and they're going to fight tooth and nail and, ma- and bleed the Americans white in this battle. That literally to the last sword, last bullet, last grenade, all the way, and it's happening tonight on Battlecast. Before any American troops would land on Iwo Jima, the island was isolated for months. During this time, American air and naval forces surrounded and pounded the island with impunity. It began on December 8th with the heaviest air attack ever massed in the Pacific War at this point. 212 heavy bombers and long-range fighters rained death on Chidori Airfield and the heavy gun emplacements nearby. The few Japanese fighters who tried to intercept the American bombers were destroyed. Not a single American plane was lost. The Chidori airfield complex took years to plan and build. Men in Tokyo engineered it. Construction firms shaped the ground. Men broke their backs and worried about schedules to complete it. And now it was a heap of broken ruins. Now it was a mass of destruction. And this was just the beginning. Eight square miles of land. That's what Iwo Jima is. And now, America is going to focus the entire industrial might of an entire continent, North America, on those eight square miles. The island became a place where men transformed into moles, hugging the ground, burrowing deep into their tunnels, peeking from their holes like groundhogs, blinking at the sun they rarely saw. On Christmas Eve, four Navy cruisers unloaded 2,000 rounds of 8-inch shell on the island. On December 27th, the cruisers returned and bombarded Iwo Jima with 1,200 rounds of 8-inch shells, sinking two Japanese ships in the process. The Japanese mounted no response to this provocation. Starting on December 8th, the island would be progressively soaked with bombs, attacked by B-29 Superforts and B-24 Liberators, and shelled by heavy naval batteries. It lasted 72 consecutive days before American troops even landed on the island, and then the bombardment continued. All told, U.S. forces would bombard Iwo Jima's 24,000 men for 107 days. I want to give you a few examples of the massive firepower the Americans brought to bear on the Japanese. From the 1st of January to the 11th, Army bombers hammered Iwo Jima in daylight with 15,000 tons of explosives. On January 25th, the battleship Indiana fired 1,316-inch shells into the island. The same day, four cruisers slammed another 1,300 shells on the shuddering target, sweeping the beaches in Chidori Airfield from end to end. Air photos showed nearly 5,000 craters on one square mile of terrain. Other attacks came daily from the sea or air until troops hit the beaches on the morning of February 19th. The bombardment culminated on the three days before February 19th. 
Iwa was gridded and systematically hammered grid by grid over the total area of the island. So they took a map of the island. They put grids over the island on a map. And they're systematically going to bombard each grid and each target on the island. Every known major position was numbered and listed in a master index. When a target was demolished, it was checked off the chart. On the second day of the heavy bombardment, February 17th, three destroyers, 12 rocket-firing minesweepers, and a dozen gunboats closed in on the beaches to assault island strongpoints and to sweep mines from the path of the troop carriers arriving in two days. Finally, Kurobayashi made a response. The Japanese fought back. Bill Ross describes it this way, quote, Furious action erupted everywhere. A violent sea-land battle in the making. Before noon, the Navy would lose more ships and men than on D-Day in Europe. Thousands of sailors from ships offshore scanned the incredible scene with disbelief. They witnessed giant orange fireballs erupting geysers of black sand and rubble. General Kurabayashi thought this was the actual invasion and unleashed hell on the forward American troops. Less than 250 yards from the beaches, the American gunboats were smothered by an avalanche of shelling. Coastal defense guns, artillery, rockets, and heavy mortars. In 19 minutes, every vessel in the assaulting armada was hit. 43 men were killed and 153 were wounded. An artillery round cut down five men manning the 40mm bow gun of ship 449 and blew the weapon into the sea. Another blast demolished the tower and killed 12 men. A third explosion sent shrapnel into the body of 449 skipper Rufus Herring. The 25-year-old man fought for the next 30 minutes to stay alive, blood gushing from three deep wounds as he steered to a destroyer for protection. Herring saved his men's lives, and he refused to leave until the last of his 20 men still alive were taken from the ship. 17 had been killed. Herring had a Congressional Medal of Honor waiting for him when he recovered from his wounds. End quote. On the second day of the bombardment, Americans pummeled the Japanese positions with 3,000 tons of steel and TNT, yet still hundreds of Japanese pillboxes and strong points held out in concealed positions across the island. Incredibly, the Americans lost more men and equipment than the Japanese on February 17th. Kurabayashi had prepared his men well. The third day of the heavy bombardment was like the first. It was hampered by bad weather. On February 19th, after tens of thousands of tons of explosives had been dropped on the island, aerial photos showed little change in the Japanese defenses. About 30 positions had been destroyed. Hundreds of heavy-armed and fortified emplacements were left unscathed. They would have to be cleared point by point, man by man. The shelling and bombardment of Iwo Jima is generally regarded as a failure. Many Marines would pay in blood for that failure. It was February 19th, and they were about to hit the beaches. Yeah, I guess it goes to show you, no matter how much you bombard something, somebody, and apparently everything, always survives in this case. <laughs> well, when you're facing a man like Kurabayashi, it's yeah. hard to get him out because he's a genius. Do we know why the bombardment sp- so failed so spectacular? Oh, yeah, we do. Uh, the first day of the major bombardment and the last day, the third day of the major bombardment. So, February... 16th and 18th, there was bad weather, and it hampered the ability of the bombers and the artillery to see their targets yeah. precisely. But you figure, like, you drop that amount of, of explosives, bombs, steel, and those 16-inch guns coming off the Indiana, you got to hit something. Even if you're even if you're kind of far away from it, it's still just massive craters and shelling. And They did hit things. The problem was they didn't hit enough. They didn't hit enough. On the 17th day, Kurbayashi <laughs> fought back and actually hurt more Americans than he received yeah, casualties. That speaks to the ability of the Japanese gunners there. And it speaks to the ability of one, Kurbayashi. But to get to the beaches of Iwo Jima, the troops had to be transported. And so 500 ships massed off the coast of Saipan in the second week of February to take them there. Now, this isn't the entire armada. Many of the battleships and aircraft carriers were actually attacking Japanese positions at this time. This is just the transportation force, and it already comprised 500 ships. By February 19th, the Armada, reinforced with numerous offensive ships, was ready to unload their troops. If you had been there, 
This is what you would have seen. At 3 a.m., the Marines were woken from their bunks. Many had not slept at all. Fear and adrenaline had raked their insides. The battle started with an all-out bombardment from 79 ships directly on the landing beaches, clearing the way for the Marines. While this is going on, the Marines ate steak breakfast. For many, it would be their last meal. At 6.30, the Admiral gave the order for attack. Land the landing force! The three and a half hours had seemed an eternity to the men waiting. Remember what it felt like to go to the principal's office when you were a kid? Or sit through a nasty divorce in a court? It felt like that magnified a thousandfold for these men hitting the beaches. The Marines looked at each other. Some literally wept. They knew. They just knew. Many of them wouldn't come back. Imagine looking at your friend in the face and knowing that. Imagine closing your eyes and picturing your best friend burned with white phosphorus or bombed accidentally by his own air force or drowned or dragged under by the demigod-like force of the undercurrent of the ocean. Then open your eyes and look at your friend. What do you say? What can you say? Now repeat the process for three and a half hours, sitting and waiting. At 6.30, the ships disgorged the men into the waiting landing craft. The marines scurried like tens of thousands of ants leaving their hill. Here is how one historian described this point in the battle. Quote, The marines clambered down cargo nets to bobbing landing craft, which circled for a time in the choppy sea, and then began to run ashore. The boat, the bow doors opened on the ugly, on the ugly landing ship tanks, which are long ships that resembled a banana that are especially made for these types of landing operations. The ships spewed troops, Amtraks, into the waters of the beach. Amtraks, which are track boats that are modified for very various uses, including tank operations, air cover, roared over the beaches in low-level attacks on Japanese fortifications. The troops on the LSTs backed down steep ladders from troop compartments to cavernous tank decks and climbed aboard amphibious tractors. The Amtraks would carry them to the beaches. Beads of sweat broke out on faces. Jackets were soggy from the heat. Blue, swirling exhaust flames clogged lungs and made eyes water. Once in the water, the Amtraks made giant circles like covered wagons in an old western movie. Nine rocket-firing gunboats moved within 250 yards of the east boat landing and opened fire at 6.45 a.m. 9,500 of their 5-inch missiles slammed into the cliffs around the quarry. This bombardment ceased at 5 minutes past 8 o'clock. Then 72 Navy Corsair and Hellcat fighters and Dauntless bombers swarmed into action, dropping bombs, firing rockets, and strafing the curtains of machine gun bullets. After the planes cleared the sky, the Navy bombardment began again. A corporal from Missouri screamed with delight as the Navy shells retore into the already burnt-over beaches. Give them hell! God Almighty, I hate to be in those bastard shoes! End quote. Deep in a cave, overlooking the bombardment with his binoculars, General Kurabayashi was making a pair of shoes for the Americans. He just hadn't unleashed it yet. Where the hell are they? asked a pilot in his second strafing run. The island seemed deserted from the air. The Japanese were listening to their last set of orders from Kurabayashi. Imagine your boss telling you this, quote, Above all else, we shall dedicate ourselves and our entire strength to the defense of this island alone. We shall grasp the grenades, charge enemy tanks, and destroy them. We shall infiltrate into the midst of the enemy and annihilate them. With every salvo, we will, without fail, kill the enemy. Every man will make it his duty to kill ten of the Americans before dying. And when we are overrun, until we are destroyed to the last men, we shall harass the enemy by guerrilla tactics. End quote. The Americans were on their way. The plan was for the first wave of amphibious tractors to land and push inland 50 yards, clearing the beaches of any opposition and setting up a defensive perimeter for the men behind them. No assault troops were in the seven-ton steel siding landing craft, only a three-man crew to operate it and man a 75-millimeter howitzer and three machine guns. Six waves of Amtraks carrying the 1st Marine riflemen would follow from 250 to 500 yards apart and land at five-minute intervals. Each wave had 1,300 men riding in Higgins' boats. Their plan was to slash across the island's neck and split it in two, isolating the high ground that dominated the island on Mount Surabayachi. Now, in order to understand this plan, I want you to think of Iwo Jima as a triangle with the pinnacle facing down. On the pinnacle is the key high ground on Iwo Jima, a mountain named Surabachi. 
The Marines are going to cut across the island below this mountain and isolate the pinnacle of the triangle from the fat bottom side of the triangle. Now, the landing zone had simple names, Red Beach 1, Blue Beach 2, etc. But men's nerves were bursting in the Higgins boats as men circled in the sea, waiting to go into the beaches. One group of soldiers wrote on the front of their boat, It's too late to worry. Troops were weighed down with two heavy knapsacks of gear, gas masks, blankets, and ponchos. Here's how Corporal Eugene Jones described the scene. Quote, It looked like the biggest effing pinball machine you've ever seen. It's like shooting damn ducks, man. But these sons of bitches will shoot back at you, yelled a friend in response. And the Japanese ducks were waiting, watching from their holes with their mortars and their wings. The bombardment stopped at 8.57. The first wave of Amtrak's was only 600 yards from the shore. Now the shelling walked up the beach and moved 400 yards up the terraces, decimating the hills around the beaches. The range lifted farther inland every three minutes as the troops arrived. At 9.02, the first wave of Amtrak's hit the beach. It was easy at first. They were taking only spasmodic small arms fire. Then the machines hit the sand and began to bog down in the black sand as they struggled over the 15-foot terraces. The drivers' hearts were in their throats. If they couldn't get over the terrace, they would be sitting ducks, a perfect target for Kurabayashi's concealed artillery. The tracks cut foot-deep lines in the sand. A United Press correspondent called this point in the battle systematic murder and destruction. Still, the Amtrak's war at the terraces, and at 9.05, the first waves of riflemen arrived. They swarmed from the Amtrak's a single human line stretched along two miles of beach, and they ran until the black sand began to choke their legs, trapping them and sucking them into the beach, almost willing them to die like the beach had a malignant deity helping the Japanese. But where the hell were the Japanese? The landings were almost unopposed. The officers on the ground couldn't believe it. One colonel named Warham set up his command post on Red Beach and radioed, Landon's on schedule. Casualties unexpectedly light. Where was the enemy? Maybe the bombardment had worked. It was all too easy. I told you, said one smiling private from Brooklyn to his friend, the shelling killed all of them, like sitting ducks. But he didn't know Kurabayashi. This duck was about to transform into an eagle. This was Kurabayashi's plan. Let the beach fill up with men and equipment. Let them work themselves into a massive traffic jam then unleash hell on them. Kurabayashi smiled as he looked through his binoculars. Everything was going just like he wanted it. At 10 o'clock, Kurabayashi sprung his trap. Quote, Sand hummocks, appearing as giant, dead ant hills, just a little hill, moments before, began to spew machine gun fire from holes hardly visible above ground level. Mortars fell in cascades from hundreds of concealed pits. Heavy artillery and rapid-firing anti-aircraft guns, barrels lowered to rake the beaches, slammed shell after shell into oncoming landing craft and support vessels, landmines, sown like wheat in a field, exploded in sickening black geysers on the terraces as Marines stumbled across them. 15-inch coast defense guns and large mortars rained death down from Mount Suribachi's base, slopes, and top. End quote. Every square inch, every single millimeter of the beachhead was under methodical, planned, deadly fire. There was no main defense line for the Marines to breach. The whole island was a giant sponge, every hole a separate hell. By now, 6,200 men were pinned down on 3,000 yards of death sand, more than two marines to every yard of shoreline. Boats were still trying to land, and troops wondered why there was no more place for men to maneuver. There was no way to even dig a foxhole. As fast as the loose volcanic ash was scooped out, the hole filled up again. Men burrowed as best they could into the sand or pressed against rocks or hugged the sides of shell craters. Anything to shield themselves from the withering fire. Seven landing craft were demolished in five minutes. 
clogging the beachhead and completing the encirclement of the men on the beach. Marines braved fire to move the immobile hulks by hand. Artillery and mortar fire raked into their lines, just as simple and as easy as you rake leaves in your front yard. Death was dealt. Just ten minutes before, General Smith had been smiling. Everything was working out. This is going better than we planned it. Ten minutes before, he had the war in his damn hand, and then the radio started to crackle the evil news. 10.36. We're catching all hell from the quarry! Heavy mortar and machine gun fire! My God! We're pinned down! We're pinned down! Abruptly, the radio fell short. 600 yards away from General Smith, the man radioing him was eviscerated in an artillery shell. He couldn't have even felt a thing. 10.39, this report came in. We're taking heavy casualties and can't move for the moment. The mortars are killing us. 10.42, all units pinned down by artillery and mortar. Casualties heavy. We, we need tank support fast to move. We need tanks now, damn it. Tanks! 10.46, we're nearly across the neck of the island, but damn, we're taking heavy fire and forward movement stopped. Machine gun and artillery fire is it's the damn heaviest I've ever seen. End quote. All these reports are literally true. They are actual recordings I'm reading to you. Still, the Marines and the beachheads used bulldozers to cut holes in the terraces. The few tanks they had began to return shell for shell. Machine guns sent bullet for bullet. Once more, the men started to move. First, it was one demigod, a second Hercules, fleeing himself into the maelstrom of enemy fire. Then it was one and two, these moving tips of spears. Then it was fire teams and squads. More tanks and cannon poured onto the beach from the ships outside. The Marines were bloody, but so were the Japanese. It was like watching a UFC fight, where both contestants just keep going no matter what. Their eyes choked with blood and pus, their ears and noses streaming blood, but they just keep fighting past what the body can endure, but still the spirit refuses to stop. That's what it was like on those beaches of Iwo Jima. I almost cried writing the show notes. It was so terrible and awful when I read about it. Marines fell in mounting numbers, their screams of pain cutting through the din of fighting. But others pushed inland from the shore, up the terraces, and over the top onto the airstrip runway. Still others rammed across the neck of the island at Suribachi's base. They crept and crawled. They waddled like ducks, but they moved forward. Many Marines and Japanese died. There was the famous gunnery sergeant, John Bassaloni, the first leatherneck awarded the Medal of Honor in World War II. Manila John, they called him. He was cut down by an impersonal mortar while leading his men in an assault on Red Beach 2. Other men became almost godlike heroes. One was Tony Stein, a 24-year-old from Dayton, Ohio. Historian Bill Ross describes Stein's actions, quote, Stein spotted a pillbox holding up the advance and he went for it. His weapon was a one-of-a-kind machine gun he had made himself called the Stinger, and it was truly unique. Stein had been an apprentice toolmaker before the war, and he used his skills to fashion it from a machine gun he scrounged from a wreck Navy plane. Spewing bullets in rapid bursts, the Stinger and his gung-ho triggerman pinned the Japanese inside the pillbox while Stein's friends finished them with demolitions charges. In 60-minute shootouts against nine other strong points, Stein killed at least 20 Japanese alone. When ammunition was gone, he shed his steel helmet and his shoes, and he dashed to the beach under heavy fire barefoot to get more ammunition. He made eight round trips, saving a wounded Marine's life each time by carrying him from the front line on his own back. On the ninth foray, he was slammed in the shoulder with shrapnel. His commander ordered him to the rear for treatment and evacuation. Stein bluntly refused the order. At the end of the day, Stein and his singer were still in action, battling the enemy in pillbox after pillbox, bunker after bunker, yard by yard, as the thin line of Marines drove a wedge across the island. He was the first Marine awarded the Medal of Honor during the battle. End quote. Chris, what do you think about this guy? Oh, that sounds like a gung-ho Marine, man. <laughs> one, of the, one of the stuff heroes are made of. I mean... He killed 20 men single-handedly, and they're in concealed positions, and he's not. Oh, yeah. He's a madman just going out there, and he's firing his own weapon. That he, that <laughs> Handmade. He fashioned himself. Oh, love this guy. Do you, do you think you could do something like that? Fashion my own machine gun and then charge a Japanese <laughs> pillbox? No. 
No, no, me neither. Like, That's go. why he got the Medal of Honor. Hey, Tony, you go, buddy. Yeah. Well, all right. Well, let's get back to it. So the Japanese use armor-piercing shells to disable American tanks. Sergeant Grady Gallant saw a round slam into one of the tanks. He said this, It punched through the cold armor plate as a finger is punched through putty. He said it made... It made a hole all the way through the thickest part of the tank, and the crew died in what Gallant remembered as a jellied, liquefied mass blended into a viscoidal, sticky fluid. That's a quote. That's how he described it. This is what, this is what our fathers did. This is the cross they bore. And you complain about your commute, and your 9 to 5, and how you haven't had a date in a few months. You have no room to complain. Our fathers laugh at you from heaven. The day's casualties were terrible. Consider one company of men, K Company. By 4.30 in the afternoon, all of the unit's officers were dead or wounded. Or consider the 2nd Battalion. When they hit the beaches, they had almost a 1,000 men. As night fell, fewer than 300 were alive and unwounded. As night did fall, the Marines worked around the clock to clear the beaches and fortify their positions. Everyone thought the Japanese would lead a Benzai charge that night, but it never came. Because this is Kurabayashi. He's too smart to charge into a fortified position. Instead, the Japanese raked the marine positions with artillery and mortar fire. What? Why the hell can't they leave us alone? One private named Zerlinden complained. That's when two shells slammed into his position. Zerlinden was blown skyward, then fell back into the crater in a cascade of dirt and shell fragments. He heard his friend Heineke yell that he'd been hit, and Zerlinden knew something was dreadfully wrong with his own body. He looked down and saw that his left leg twisted away from his body at a grotesque angle. He slumped back in sharp pain and felt the warm ooze of blood saturating his pants. Sir Linden forced himself to look down again. His leg was gone, eviscerated, like a magician had made it disappear. All he could see was a bloody stump. Then he saw it, but he took to be an extra limb and foot in his foxhole. He had to get rid of it. He grabbed for it and tried to fling the bloody mess from the hole. It was his own leg, still attached to his body in a tangle of flesh and bone. He straightened the limb out the best he could and gulped down the brandy he had luckily snuck ashore with him. Zerlinden's war was over. Robert Sherrod of the Time and Life magazine was on the ground with the troops, and here's how Robert described the first night on Iwo Jima. Quote, The first night can only be described as a nightmare in hell. About the beach in the morning lay the dead. They had died with the greatest possible violence. Nowhere in the Pacific have I seen such badly mangled bodies, my God. Many were cut squarely in half, as if a doctor had cut them in half, or a magician. Legs and arms lay fifty feet from any body. All told, the Americans lost 2,312 men killed and many more wounded. The Japanese losses are unknown, but they were substantially smaller. Kurabayashi would bleed the Americans dry. His ancestors had conquered Korea. He had helped conquer in China. Now he would conquer these Americans or fall like a cherry blossom in a beautiful death. The Marines had achieved their objective. They had bisected the island and cut off the pinnacle. The only way was up, up the mountain, the fortress named Mount Suribachi. It looked like it couldn't be stormed, towering over them like a second tower of Babel, but the Marines would storm it anyway. But that's another podcast. What? Why are we stopping? Go on. I'm interested. Riveted, really. <laughs> Read, <Yep>. donkey. <laughs> Read, donkey. Yeah, well, we've been doing this for a while, man. And, you know, uh, the uh, Sam I Adams. Know. I got nowhere to go. It's good to dance. <laughs> no, it's a good place to stop, man. We've gone uh, through yes, about, what, 15 good. pages? Oh, yeah. We've been going for a while. Seems like a good good place to stop. It's a good place to stop. I've had a the few Marines beers. I've, I've got their beachhead and they're still taking fire. And they've bisected the island. I mean, they've cut off the forces from each other, right? <laughs> so it's a good place. Well, what do you think of the first day? A hell of a chapter in Japanese and American history, don't you think, Chris? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the bloody battle being slugged out by two forces. The, the overwhelming might of America versus the resolve and dug-in fortified position of the Japanese and just one giant meat grinder so that they could bleed the Americans white and yeah. make them and hopefully bring them to the negotiating table. Think about this. These Japanese that did this today had been shelled for around 80 days. 
they're surrounded, they're cut off, there's no chance of rescue or resupply. All they can do is dig in and kill. It's insane, and it's a hell of a battle, and you heard it here first on Battlecast. Well, that's it for EWO Part 1, friends. Please remember to leave us a five-star review at iTunes and visit our website for additional content, thebattlecast.com. You can also email us with questions or comments at battlecastnet at gmail.com. You know, Chris, I think that might be your best outro yet. And that's it for me here in the North Georgia Bunker. I want to remind you to check out the website for a bonus cast, our website-only show where Chris and I discuss the topics of the day and how stupid our haircuts are. And to seek us out, we actually have men from the ships of the United States Navy surrounding Iwo Jima who are about to land. Back then, people had to come up with their own entertainment, and one of the things they liked to do together was sing. And that's true. And this is Luke wishing you good times and good weather with good people. Bye. We've been doing a lot of singing aboard here. When we were, before we got into dangerous waters, we used to sing at night up uh, under the stars. And this sergeant was our prize singer here. We used to call him back. Now, what song do you suggest? Well, we have one uh, called Bless Them All. You've probably all heard it. And someone else wrote some more words. I don't know who done it, but we have these other words also we'll add in. That's a pretty popular song with the Marines. We know the Raiders sang it, and it's been sung all over the South Pacific. And uh, if you sing it out good and loud, maybe they can get the words back home, and they'll uh, maybe it'll mean something to them. Yeah, I think it will. All right, how about leading them? All right, you guys ready? Now, loud. We're Marines, and we're fighting like hell. Heading for Tokyo, we've got every weapon to shoot up the town, we're, we're scattering Japs all around, it's a hell of a place, this is part of the world, nothing but jungles and swamps, but when the war's over, we'll all live in clover, so come on guys, next stop is Guam. Bless them all, bless them all, the long and the short and the tall. Bless all the pelicans and dog faces too. Bless all my friends and the buffalo bless you. So we're saying goodbye to you all. As back to our foxholes we crawl. There'll be no promotions this side of the ocean. So cheer up, my boys, bless them all.